Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name is Elise Glink, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I'm a best-selling author, radio talk show host, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, a financial wellness technology company. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency in last April as part of its ongoing effort to be helpful to you in this time of economic pain. The company launched an extensive COVID and credit financial resource center. You can find it at Equifax.com. In a year that's been overwhelming in almost every way I can think of, financially, politically, emotionally, and in all matters that have to do with health. This podcast is part of that effort to help expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in this country, as well as some of Equifax's own subject matter experts. We discuss real-world financial solutions and share resources for people just like you who want to protect your credit and manage your finances during this COVID pandemic. In this episode, we're going to talk with Rick Sharga, Executive Vice President of Realty Track, a leading provider of nationwide real estate data, about housing prices, foreclosures and forbearance, and what the next few quarters might look like for home buyers, home sellers, real estate investors, and commercial property owners as well. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's turn to Beverly Anderson, president of the Equifax Global Consumer Solutions Division, to answer a question we received about why credit scores look different to consumers and lenders. Hey, Bev, welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Hi, Elise. Thanks. It's nice to be here. So we haven't talked in a few weeks. So before we get to today's question, I was thinking we could catch up on some of the things we talked about in earlier podcasts. For example... We're still seeing first-time weekly unemployment numbers that are far higher than anything we've seen in any recession since, I think, the 1930s. I know. I keep hoping that we've turned the corner and we're going to see those numbers start to come down. But instead, week in and week out, it's been crazy. By May, more than 40 million Americans lost their job. And since then, more than 10 million more have lost their jobs. It's a crazy high number. Yeah, it really is. I know that economists have some concern that although lots of people have been called back to work, there will be more significant layoffs coming in the fourth quarter. Some of the airlines have already announced that they're cutting back service or even eliminating service from cities, which portends large layoffs coming. Yes, it's been devastating to think how many people are struggling right now. When I talk with the Equifax economic experts, They point out that there are only five or six million jobs available for more than 20 million people who are looking. That's a mismatch that won't be easily solved. Yeah, that's right. And even as so many people are unemployed, the real estate market has been on fire. Another kind of interesting thing. People are buying and selling at levels that haven't been seen since 2006, which was at the height of the last real estate bubble. Not that I'm predicting a bubble of housing prices, but it's really interesting to see. We got a question about credit reports and why they look different when a consumer pulls them and when a lender pulls them. And given the interest in real estate right now, I thought maybe you could elaborate on the distinction between the two. Sure, Elise. There are a few reasons that credit scores you see when you check on your own may vary from what lenders see when evaluating you for a credit account. However, it's important to understand that these discrepancies don't necessarily mean that either set of scores is inaccurate. Well, let's just start with the idea that you don't have one credit score or one credit report for that matter. That's right. It's actually a common misconception that every individual has a single unique credit score that represents their level of risk when applying for new accounts. In reality, there's no limit on the number of credit scores that could be generated that may accurately reflect your financial information and payment history. 
That's because individual consumer reporting agencies, credit scoring companies, lenders, and creditors may each use slightly different proprietary formulas to calculate your credit scores. They might also weigh your information differently depending on the type of credit account for which you've applied. So if I'm looking for a house or a car, the lender would pull a credit score that's specifically designed to calculate my risk as a home buyer or car buyer? Exactly. For example, let's say you're going to buy a house. When mortgage lenders review your credit history, it's likely they'll use a credit score formula tailored to determine what kind of risk you'll be for a mortgage loan. The formula may weigh pieces of your credit history differently in order to test for that risk factor. It works the same way if you apply for an industry-specific line of credit, such as a personal credit card or an auto loan. Do your credit scores and reports differ based on the credit reporting agency that provides it to the lender or creditor? Well, they can. Each agency independently determines your credit scores based on the information in their individual databases. So there may be slight discrepancies. Some lenders also only report to one or two credit reporting agencies, which means your credit history could look different from agency to agency. Additionally, your lender might be viewing a consolidated score that draws from all three credit reporting agencies or even using their own in-house scoring model. So what happens when I check my own credit scores? When you check your own credit scores, what you see are known as educational credit scores meaning they are intended to give you a close idea of your scores for informational and monitoring purposes. While they're a good way to gauge your credit rating, you may not be seeing the exact same numbers as your lender. Does timing play a role in how credit scores look? We pay our credit card bill off several times a month and well before the due date, and I'm kind of wondering, does that affect what a credit score or a credit report might look like at different times of the month? That's a really good point, Elise. There's often a delay between when you make a payment and when credit reporting agencies factor that transaction into your credit scores. After you make a big payment or do anything else that could substantially impact your credit scores, be sure to confirm that your information is being included on your credit reports properly so that lenders are seeing an accurate and up-to-date credit history. And the easiest thing to do is check your credit scores and credit reports yourself, right? It's really a smart move because by focusing on key factors in your credit reports, such as payment history, credit card use, and length of credit history, you get a solid sense of your financial standing in the eyes of a lender. If you want to see your Equifax credit report and score, you can also create a MyEquifax account. Go to myequifax.com and enroll there. Once you've set up your account, you can click Get My Free Credit Score on your MyEquifax dashboard to enroll in Equifax Core Credit for a free monthly Equifax credit report and a free monthly Vantage Score 3.0 credit score based on Equifax data. That's great. Thanks so much, Bev. Talk to you again soon. You'll bet, Elise. Have a good one. So now that you know why lenders and creditors might see slightly different credit scores and reports, let's talk about the real estate market with one of my favorite real estate industry observers, Rick Sharga. He's executive vice president of Realty Track. Rick, welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's great to actually get a chance to talk with you again. You and I have both been through many, many years of ups and downs in the real estate market. It's a cyclical market, right? You know, things go up, things go down. Hopefully over time, though, your house is worth more when it comes time to sell it than it is today. 
But it feels like some things are different with this recession versus the housing market meltdown in 2008. What's your take on that? I think that's a really good observation. There, there are very few similarities between this recession and the Great Recession that we saw back around 2008. And, and a lot of those differences have a direct impact on the housing market. For example, the, the loan quality of borrowers this time around was much, much better. Uh, entering into this recession, we were at historically low levels of foreclosures, very, very low levels of loan delinquencies. Uh, and there uh, is a, a record amount of homeowner equity in the market today, about $6.5 trillion worth of equity. Um, in, in fact, uh, according to our parent company, Adam Data, about 70% of homeowners have more than 20% equity in their homes. If you compare that to what we saw in, in 2008 before the, the last recession hit, uh, it really is kind of a night and day scenario. So that, that equity will give homeowners a, a lot of options uh, to avoid a foreclosure in the event they do find themselves in financial distress. But I, I would suggest one of the most important differences this time compared to last time is that this time the government and the industry have worked together in advance of the problem uh, and, and have dedicated countless millions and millions of dollars uh, in time and resources to prevent defaults by, by homeowners. And as anybody who's been in the mortgage industry for, for any period of time will tell you, it's a lot easier to work with a homeowner and find a solution if you can keep them out of default than once they've defaulted on a loan trying to fix things. And to your point, the Mortgage Bankers Association publishes a weekly survey of forbearance and call center activities, and that number is looking pretty good. It's about 7.2%. It's down from the high, which was in the 8% range. But that still means that, what, 3.5 to 4 million families are in forbearance, not making their mortgage payments. Does that concern you? It, it sounds like an awfully big number, doesn't it? And, and you'd think it to be a cause for concern. The, the forbearance program is one of the big, big uh, areas of effort that the government and the industry have worked on, uh, to, again, to keep people from, from having to go into default. Um, there were some analysts who were predicting that 25 to 30 percent of borrowers would wind up in that program. And in fact, it peaked at a little over 8 uh, percent. And the numbers have been coming down every week since then. So I, I would submit that if if the problem were getting worse, we would have seen a spike in the number of people asking for forbearance at the end of March, which is when the program started. And we would have seen similar spikes at the end of April, at the end of May, at the end of June, at the end of July, when the next month's mortgage payment was coming due. And in fact, just the opposite has happened. It's con continued to get uh, lower and lower every week. The other thing that's important to, to keep in mind when it comes to the forbearance program is that uh, over a quarter, uh, about 26% of the borrowers in forbearance have continued to make their regular monthly payment. Uh, and and that's, that's a, a surprisingly positive number. So if there were 4 million people in the program, a million of them have never missed a payment, even though they've been allowed to because they're part of this program. And the other thing that the people need to keep in mind is as people are exiting the program uh, and, and they, they leave forbearance and, and reinstate their loans, less than 10% of them uh, are, are actually turning out to be delinquent afterwards. So 90% of the people that are exiting the program are able to kind of maintain uh, a current status. So, so far, so good. That actually is I, remarkable. And I have to give credit to the mortgage industry and the government because they decided they were going to attack this 
in I think the right way versus you know ten years ago where it just went down so quickly uh, and kind of blew up in everybody's faces, and then uh, you know ten million Americans ended up financially hamstrung because of it. But I do wonder about these millions and millions of people who are unemployed. We know that more than half of all American households have seen a reduction of income, either because of a job cut, they had to take some sort of time off, unpaid, they lost a job. So that's a very serious number if you're talking about over half. Do you think that the good numbers you're seeing have to do with that extra $600 a week that people were getting and the savings that they were able to compile. And do you think that, that now that that number has ended and people aren't getting anything extra, do you think that sort of all this good news is going to start to catch up with people? Look, I'd be completely Pollyannish to sit here and tell you that we're not going to see an increase in delinquency rates and, and defaults and foreclosures. Uh, when, when 50 million uh, Americans file for unemployment, there, there's going to be some fallout. Um, this has been a very peculiar recession because it wasn't caused by an underlying economic weakness. It was caused by a pandemic that in, in part kept consumers home because they were afraid of going out and in part shut down the economy because the government was trying to stem the tide of, of the coronavirus. Uh, you have to remember the U.S. economy is based 70% on consumer spending. So if you tell people they, they can't get out of the house and they're not allowed to spend money on anything, uh, it, it's going to have an impact on, on the overall economy and, and lead to unemployment. That said, um, the, the in, there were a number of industries that were particularly hard hit by the pandemic. Uh, they tended to be things like retail and restaurants, travel and tourism, entertainment, they were service industries, and service industries tend to be populated largely by hourly wage earners, uh, relatively low-salaried employees. They tend to be younger. They tend to be a little bit less educated. They tend not to be homeowners uh, is, is where, where all this is going. Uh, and, and so the economic impact of this recession so far has disproportionately hit renters much harder than it's hit homeowners. The good news is if you're looking at the housing market specifically, we're less likely to have the kind of fallout in housing that you would have normally seen in a recession of this size, simply because the numbers have been skewed so, so heavily toward renters. The bad news is it really is, is running the risk of broadening that economic divide between the haves and the have-nots, simply because it's hitting people who can least afford uh, a financial hit. And so the, the enhanced unemployment benefits uh, the government stimulus programs, while they probably did help uh, the homeownership uh, group, they, they helped the, the renters much, much more. And if you're going to see short-term fallout from those programs going away, it's likely to be from small investors who own a, a limited number of rental properties uh, who have to sell their properties because their, their tenants are no longer able to pay them rent. So that, that could be one of the unintended consequences of some of these government programs going away. I, that's exactly what I was thinking, is that you're, you do have just millions of sort of mom-and-pop investors. As, let's just call them that. They're not the hedge funds. They're not private equity. They're not large-scale investment groups. Somebody's got a three-flat. Somebody's got a six-flat. Maybe they've got a couple of them that they've accumulated over the years. They are at risk, I think, from having the properties go into foreclosure simply because they're not getting in the money that they would normally get to pay their bills and their investors aren't maybe being so kind to them. 
um, as they are being to homeowners at this point. You know, that begs the question of what do we see happening in the commercial real estate sector as well? Because when I look at downtowns across the country and you look at these tall buildings and you know that all of those companies have people working from home right now, they all have to be thinking, do I really need to have this much space? Should it be configured this way? And boy, what would it do for my bottom line if I could seriously get rid of half, three quarters, or even all of the office space I currently occupy? You're you're absolutely right about the landlord community. If you look at, there are 16 million uh, single family rental units across the country. These are our homes or, or some sort of individual unit that's being rented out. 95% of them are owned by people who own 10 or fewer properties. These are your, your prototypical mom and pop investors. A lot of them are probably highly leveraged mom and pop investors uh, who just don't have the financial wherewithal to, to continue making mortgage payments while their tenants aren't making payments to them. And, and if you start looking at smaller multifamily units across the country, the nature of those landlords is very similar. And, and this could be an area of weakness. We, we could also see people that invested in properties and, and converted them to Airbnb units, um, similarly affected because nobody's traveling right now. I, I'm actually more concerned, and this is the second point, I'm, I'm more concerned about the commercial market this time than the residential market uh, in, in no small part because state, local, and federal government uh, agencies have really spent so much time kind of propping up the residential market. But a, a lot of retail space, a lot of restaurant space uh, has, has been leased out to small businesses. Uh, we're, we're now in sort of the second wave of shutdowns across the country uh, due to the pandemic. And I just don't know how many of those businesses are going to be able to survive that length of time not not generating any revenue. So I suspect we're going to see an awful lot of vacancies. The retail industry was already sort of teetering on the edge. We've seen bankruptcies by by a lot of household names, you know, from JC Penney's to Neiman Marcus, uh, Forever 21, 24 Hour Fitness, uh, across the board, Brooks Brothers, Joseph A. Banks. So a lot of these companies are are either going to go out of business entirely or dramatically shrink their footprint. And then the, there's the office sector, which is the one you were talking about. And yes, I, I think you're going to see two countervailing trends in offices. Uh, one is that for anybody who stays in an office, employees are going to have an expectation of having more space, uh, right. a, a little bit uh, more of a buffer zone. So you're going to need more space per employee. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know you see companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, telling employees that they're working from home for the rest of the year, for all of next year, or forever. Um, and, and what's that going to do to the, the, the office demand? Uh, I, I suspect uh, some of the more expensive cities, New York and San Francisco, come to mind immediately. Uh, we're going to see a, a definite weakness in, in those markets from an office perspective. Uh, and you're going to see more decentralization. Um, you're going to see, uh, and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook talked about this. Does he really need all of his employees at a huge building in Silicon Valley? Or would he be better off having a, a satellite office in Iowa um, where he can pay people Iowa wages? And we didn't even talk about the industry I'm actually more concerned about short term is the hotel industry. Sure. Uh, Marriott is, is talking about uh, 40% occupancy rates across the country. And while they might be able to handle that for a while, imagine the small investors uh, who own hotels that are, that are largely vacant. So 
uh, commercial, I, I think, is going to be very vulnerable for the next couple of years. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, you know, business travel really hasn't returned. I haven't been on the road. I'm normally on the road every single week. I haven't been on the road since March 10th. And no matter how many times American Airlines and Southwest and all the others that I fly reach out to tell me how clean their planes are, I don't have anywhere to go. Uh, you know, we're not even looking at 2021 at this point. So thinking about that and, and just multiplying that out, there's there's a real issue. And I'm not quite sure how much warehouse space Amazon can take. You know, there are a lot of strip centers in this country and a lot of shopping malls. And it's hard to imagine them being the... Uh, the buyer or occupier of all of those. but I, I do think of all the commercial segments, the industrial sector is probably coming out of this one in the best shape, partly because of what you just talked about. Uh, interestingly, you know, we'd seen more, more and more e-commerce by consumers, uh, and the pandemic really accelerated that trend uh, to the point where it really showed weak spots in Amazon's distribution network and some of the other e-commerce players' distribution networks. So you are seeing uh, some construction, but but a lot of repurposing. Uh, ironically, uh, Amazon is gobbling up what used to be JCPenney retail stores and converting them into distribution centers, which is just kind of bizarre. The industry kind of consuming itself as it as it morphs. The the other trend that that has accelerated, and this kind of gets you back into the residential market, we had started to see millennials uh, shifting from being urban renters to suburban homeowners. And apparently being quarantined in a 700-foot apartment with a toddler turned out to be not quite as much fun as anybody expected it to be. <laughs> um, and, yes. and so we, we are seeing an acceleration of the trend toward homeownership, not just in the suburbs, but in the far suburbs. And I think the two things we're seeing that are, that are feeding into that trend are a desire to have a big enough house that you can dedicate space to offices because you know you're not going to necessarily – uh, have to to be going into an office in, in the urban center anymore, or at least not as frequently. And then that desire for more freedom and a perceived sense of safety, uh, where you're not in quite as, as densely populated an area where something like this pandemic is more likely to spread. So uh, we're, we're definitely seeing that. One of the fastest growing uh, geographies, if you will, across the country has been that far suburb, almost rural area over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's a great point. You know that when you see downtown New Yorkers enroll their children in Hamptons high schools, that you've reached a, a place where they would rather be in a public school in the Hamptons than they would at their fancy private, you know, big name school in downtown New York City, that there's been a shift that may never actually return. I just have to ask you, though, since we are back on residential, how high can home prices go before home buyers simply can't afford to buy the existing housing stock? We're not really building. We're building rentals. I'm seeing rentals, expensive rentals, continue to go up everywhere because that's what lenders have been financing. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're already at, as, at pretty much as low as you can get with mortgage interest rates. Frankly, they're just about free at the moment. I think I saw under 2% for uh, a 10 or 15-year loan the other day. I mean, I paid 11 and three quarter percent, you know, back in 1989 when I bought my first house. This is a whole lot lower, and so people can afford more. But there's still a point at which that doesn't buy you any more house. So what do you think is going to happen there? How high is a really good question. We, we, we are past the previous cycle high, which happened back in around 2006, 2007. 
Um, but when you factor in three things, inflation, even though it's been low, uh, wage growth, uh, which has been steady, if not spectacular, uh, and then interest rates, uh, it, it changes the affordability equation quite a bit. Uh, so even though both the, the, the national median home price hit an all-time high in July at a little bit over $300,000, uh, and here in California, where I'm talking to you from, it was over half a million dollars in terms of median, median home price, also a record high. It was interesting that the monthly mortgage payments in both cases were actually lower than they were a year ago. So it, it's hard to discount the impact of these mortgage rates on, on affordability. Uh, there's, there is a challenge for these home buyers in terms of down payments. Um, as, as prices go up, uh, if you're looking at a 10% down payment on that $300,000 house, you, you do have to scratch up $30,000, which in a lot of cases is, is difficult to do. Uh, but your monthly mortgage payments are, are impacted because even as recently as the last you know, housing boom uh, that we had, interest rates were in the 6 to 7% range. It makes a huge, huge difference. Now, prices are going up so quickly uh, in, in the, the, if you look at median prices, uh, and wage growth has slowed because of the pandemic. Uh, we, you know, we, we are probably not too far from hitting a wall in terms of affordability, at least in certain markets. If you're looking at coastal California, you're looking at the Pacific Northwest, if you're looking at parts of Texas like Austin and Dallas, Fort Worth, probably a handful of other markets, you, you get to that point where the buyer looks up and says, you know, no mas, I just, I, I can't do this. Uh, but, but we're not there yet. And, and, and by the way, the, the other element that you touched on was, was home building. And we've seen record levels of, of increases in housing starts and, and housing permits over the last couple of months. So the builders are starting to come back, and, and they're selling at ridiculous rates. Uh, during the last housing boom, we were talking about differences earlier. During the last housing boom, builders were just building everywhere, uh, far outpacing demand. In, in this case, people are actually buying the homes now before the builders have broken ground. So it's a completely different model. And the, the upper end of the market, I, I think, has probably already hit its peak uh, and is probably trending down a little bit. So I, I do think we'll see some corrections, but I, I do also see some inventory coming to market as the builders uh, be able to begin to break ground a little bit more aggressively. Well, there's so much more to talk about. We'll have to have you back to uh, continue to see what, what ends up happening. But I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Rick Sharga is Executive Vice President of Realty Track. They keep tabs on over 150 million properties nationwide and some other trends in real estate as well. Rick, thanks for joining us on the Equifax Credit Talks podcast today. My pleasure. We'll do it again soon. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Be sure to visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com and check out our other episodes. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Glink. Thanks for listening.